Reeling from all the terrible news, but not sure how to take action? I'm Kelly. I'm Lila. And this is What Can I Do? Each week, we interview activists about how they took action, what got them started, who helped them along the way, and what they do differently next time. In the process, we offer concrete advice on how to take the leap from freaking out on Twitter to making a difference. So let's get started. Hi, everyone. I am Kelly. I'm here with Lila. We're going to talk a little bit about this intro episode to our brand new podcast, What Can I Do? So hi, Lila. Hey, how are you? I am super excited to be doing this. I think this is what we need right now, and I hope everyone agrees. (laughs) Totally. So uh, let's talk a little bit about kind of who we are and why we're starting this podcast. Hopefully people will want to keep listening then and uh, give them a little taste of what it is that they will hear. So let's start with just a little bit of background on who we each are. So do you want to say a little bit about who you are? Sure. I'm Lila Nordstrom. I started an organization called Sty Health back in 2006 and was very involved in the advocacy efforts around getting the 9-11 community, both the community members who lived and worked and went to school downtown and first responders access to healthcare. So I was involved in this 20 year advocacy struggle. And because of that, I learned a lot about what avenues of political action are open to people and how the political system actually works. And I'm always really eager to share that information with people. And this seemed like the perfect time to do something like that because (laughs) everyone is really worried about what they should be doing next. Yeah. I'm very excited to get this, get this chance to tell people what they could be doing next. Yeah. And so I'm Kelly Therese Pollack. I say in my Twitter bio that I, I think I say I'm a university admin by day and a knitter and podcaster by night, which is pretty accurate and a feminist mom always because that just sort of (laughs) is what I am. And so I, I'm kind of a little bit of an activist dilettante, I think. (laughs) I have a tendency to sort of flit around from different thing to different thing, whichever thing is sort of riling me up at the moment, which is not necessarily the most effective way to do advocacy. And we can talk some about that with each other and with our guests. But I did a podcast called Two Broads Talking Politics for many years after the man who shall not be named was elected uh, (laughs) and talked to a lot of different activists and candidates and things like that. And I found myself sort of always wanting the action item, the sort of, okay, and now what? What can people do? You know, what what do we do? I don't want to just get people mad and upset, but what can we do? Uh, And so that's what I'm hoping we can really focus on here is sort of getting everybody really kind of this is what we do now. It's it's not just a a podcast that will make you sad and depressed about the state of the world. I think we're all plenty sad and depressed about the state of the world. We've we've done it. Yes, (laughs) we got there. (laughs) So the focus is, as the title suggests, what can I do? (laughs) Well, and I have done Kelly's podcast as an advocate while I was promoting my book. And it was one of the most thoughtful interviews that I did when I was doing that book promo. And because of that, I'm very excited to be doing this with you because I feel like I bring a lot of like chaos energy to this, the organizing work. I, I'm somebody who really likes to talk about strategy and really likes to talk about all of the things that people can do that they don't realize that they can do. And I got to do that when I spoke to you on your podcast. And I so rarely get to do that in other interviews. So I think this is like a perfect combination of, of skill sets to really like bring this work to life. And so I'm very excited that uh, we get to do this together. 
Yes. And my energy, on the other hand, is very spreadsheet oriented, right. <laughs> very to do list, very, OK, let, let's get this done. So, yes, I think it's a it's a good combination. And I think that's part of what we want to help all of you, the listeners, figure out is kind of what what is your energy that you bring to this? What types of activism and advocacy work are, are going to be right for you? The same thing is not right for everybody. And we need people doing a whole bunch of different things. And so helping you figure out, like, what, what does that mean for you? And where can you really bring something to the work is, is I think, really important. Yeah, I think also so often when we're feeling helpless, people in charge present two options, which are to vote and to donate. And I think to me, it's really important that we give people permission to think expansively and creatively about how they want to contribute and what they have to contribute because mm-hmm. activism should be fun. It should be community building. Voting and donating are not community building. They're things you do alone in your house while you're panicked about your own work deadlines. You should be able to find some work that contributes, that's tolerable to you, that feels hopeful. You know, activist work should give you a sense of optimism. And so, while voting and donating are important, they're not the things that allow you to merge community building and joy and the work. They're just sort of like a thing that you have to do to keep the lights on. I know like a lot of my friends who, you know, have been supporting me throughout my own kind of advocacy journey are really confused about why I've never taken a job inside the Beltway. I've been offered those jobs. I, you know, from the time I was 22, like had members of Congress being like, you know what you should do? You should run for office or you should come work for me or, you know, that kind of thing. And I think I really find my joy and also find that I'm most effective outside the system as, you know, as an activist, as an advocate. And that is not to say that my friends who work inside the system don't also make important contributions when they do that work. It's just not the skill set that I have. It's not where I feel that I can be most effective. And I think a lot of the time there's sort of a false equivalency between being inside the system and being effective. And, and, and I think that's not true in every case. And also being outside the system, there, there are so many opportunities to be effective that oftentimes are not given, you know, their due and are not, are not listed in the list of two items, voting and donating that often (laughs) we, we get from people inside the system. So I want people to think creatively and think about all of the weird, crazy ideas that they thought might be an interesting way to get involved that they were too afraid to tell anyone about because they seem silly. Yeah. Sadly, there's only so many times you can vote. (laughs) They don't let you just keep coming and and vote and vote. (laughs) Exactly. I would happily do it all the time. Yeah. I I think I reached a point where I was like, oh, I can't vote any harder. Mm -hmm. I am not only voting myself, I send a voting guide to all of my friends in every election. I I help anyone work out their voting issues. Like I do all the voting things that you can do as a voter. And then I'm just frequently told that I need to vote even harder than that. And I don't know how to do that. So yeah. Yeah. And I want to pick up on something that you said about thinking creatively and outside the system. And I think that's really important because I think all of us get sort of stuck in this mindset of, you know, and especially right now, it's like you play the three-dimensional chess of like, well, we should do this, and then the other side will do this, and then the other side will do this, yes. and that, you know, and it's like, and ultimately nothing will happen, so why bother? And I, I think it's really important that we bring that energy that we can think outside of that, that we can go, okay, but what about this that we've never tried before? I don't know how someone else is going to react to that. Maybe you don't get everything you want. And that's something we're going to talk to advocates about is sometimes it doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) And that's okay. But you have to try things and you have to see what's possible. 
And those are always learning experiences. Yeah. I mean, every failure that I've had as an advocate has taught me a lot about what the system does and doesn't do. It's given me some kernel of truth that I'm able to take forward to my next adventures. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's always worth having tried. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I want people to think about and that we'll talk to our guests about is taking the wins as they happen. So I think everybody right now is like, the world is falling apart and it's easy to feel that way. And I get it. But sometimes little things do happen, you know, so there's like a, a small piece of legislation that gets through and you think, well, that's not enough. It didn't solve all the problems. But it could still be a really momentous thing that this thing happened, this change finally occurred. And it's important to sort of see those wins and celebrate them and use that energy then to, to push forward. I think about that a lot on election nights where you see really depressing coverage of how whichever group of candidates you were really excited about <laughs> didn't perform the way it didn't win, but they neglect to mention that they outperformed their previous performance by like, you know, 20% or something, you know, some huge mm-hmm. margin. And when you get yourself in the habit of looking for trends instead of looking for clear wins and losses on election day, you set yourself up to feel optimistic about the organizing work that you're doing and also Mm -hmm. figure out how to be more effective next time. It's why people continue to do this work who have been doing this work. It's that that they're able to to see the hope instead of just the despair in the news. And we're not really primed to do that a lot of the time and right now certainly not because it just seems like we get a barrage of bad news just constantly (laughs) from every corner (laughs) on every issue that we care about so yeah Yeah, and i you know i should note that we're we're sort of talking a little bit around our own stances on issues and you know I, i think in a way that's purposeful we obviously have very strong political opinions, both of us. It's not hard to find those online if you want to know where we stand on various issues. But the work in a lot of ways is the same, no matter where you're approaching it from. And so that's really what our focus is, is figuring out how, once you know what it is you want to accomplish, how do you actually accomplish that? Well, I think also there's value in figuring out how, when you experience major losses, how those happen and how your opponents won. What did they do to win? And and are there things you can learn from their from from their doggedness or from their experience that you can apply to your own work? You know, anytime that you're experiencing great political losses, someone else is experiencing great political wins and they had to dream big to do that too. So it's yeah. worth knowing that, you know, as you approach your own work. So to to give listeners a little sort of taste of the kinds of things that they'll hear, I'd love to talk to you about your advocacy work and and do a little bit of the the kind of discussion that we'll have. So maybe just to sort of set the stage a little bit, a brief recap for people who haven't read your wonderful book, and they should have, but just in case they haven't, you know, what, what was the inspiration for your advocacy work in the first place? Sure. The I mean, the main inspiration for my advocacy work is that I was a student on 9-11 at a school downtown that got sent back into the disaster zone less than a month after the attacks. And as a result of that very questionable and slightly perilous public health decision, we breathed in toxic air for months and many of us are sick now. And so much like I'm, you know, I'm sure people have heard about the 9-11 first responders journey, there is a much larger actually community downtown that experienced a lot of those same exposures and are because of that also sick. And so 
I took it upon myself to be the person that would speak for the students who were downtown, a lot of whom didn't live downtown and didn't have a sort of clear community organizing force. And I did that from my college dorm when I was a senior in college and was about to graduate and just thought to myself, this is not fair. We just learned that the health insurance system in this country is a total mess. You Before the ACA, you learned that at 22. Now you learn it at 26. But either way, you learn it. And I just thought, you know, if I'm going to get sick with something horrible in 20 years, I don't want to have no way to take care of myself. And so I, I got mad. And then when I got mad, I did what I always do when I get mad about something. My first step is always to write an op-ed, because <laughs> why not? My mother had an op-ed in the New York Times when I was a teenager, and it was like her greatest moment of victory. I mean, it, it, it was as if like her whole life had been leading to this point. It is still framed in our house. It is <laughs> the most important thing anyone has ever done in the family. Like we were all so wowed by that. And so after I saw the, the glow of victory on her, I started this habit of trying to write op-eds about issues that were affecting me that I was frustrated about. And most of those ended up at the bottom of a drawer. I mean, obviously when you're 22 and you're writing op-eds, no one is caring about those op-eds. In this case though, I sent it to a bunch of friends who I had gone to school with because we were just starting to get a sense of what the dangers actually had been when we were downtown. And one of them who was at the time, he and I were engaged in sort of like a never ending political battle. We had decided that we were gonna support opposite, you know, different parties and we were mad at each other about it. But he wrote back and said, if you send it as a letter, I would sign my name. And that kind of spurred a petition drive that grew into me bird dogging politicians whenever I saw them at, you know, I would go to anti-war rallies or go to people would frequently campaign in front of this particular grocery store in New York. I would go like try to find politicians there during campaign season. And I would just tell them I, I have sent or I am sending a petition to your office. And, you know, I was doing this without consulting anyone just by myself, just roaming around, just being a, a pill. And then at, at a certain point, I ran into the Manhattan Borough President at one of these events, and he brought me in for a meeting, and it kind of launched this whole thing. But it started with me just writing an angry screed in my college dorm room and emailing it to a bunch of friends. So it started as a completely random thought experiment, and it, it, it sort of grew from there, which is, I think, why it's so important to me that... I think a lot of the time when you're interviewed about stuff like this, you're asked to mythologize the story mm -hmm. of how you began. And so it's supposed to seem like it was something very purposeful and you always had a perfect plan in mind and the plan was executed perfectly and everything worked out brilliantly because you yourself are a brilliant organizer. And I am a terrible organizer. My skill is that I'm talkative and kind of ornery. Like that's the skill set that I bring to this work. And this all started by accident and it started by accident because of an action that I took but not because of a long plan that I had. The plan came after the action started to get traction. And I'm glad that it did, but I, it, I don't think, you don't need to be a, a brilliantly gifted organizer with a 12 point plan to take your first step. Yeah. So once once you get people's attention, so that's, that's like the first piece you were doing. It was like the op-eds and the bird-dogging politicians and you get people's attention. How do you figure out how to translate their attention into their action? That was the, the biggest lesson, I think, for all of this. It took me the longest to figure that out of really any strategy piece in this experience because I think there were a few hard truths I had to face about how you get people's attention that I didn't want to. 
I am a small woman and I have always looked young. And so I had to deal with the fact that like no one ever takes what I'm saying seriously, no matter what I do. And I had to figure out how to work around that. I think it took me a long time to just admit that I was going to have to like always know that that was going to be the case and always figure out what to do about it. And then I didn't really understand how the media environment worked. And so when you're dealing with a public health issue, I thought that just like the pure injustice of what happened to us would be enough to get media attention. And we got media calls because it's a very sensationalistic story. But without sensationalistic storytelling, the, the story didn't end up in the papers. We were, you know, we were excluded from coverage. And because of that, this whole like class of 9-11 victims was excluded from coverage. And so the first harsh reality I had to face was sensationalism sells papers. And I needed to be aware of what the of what the media's agenda was just as they, you know, I needed to make them aware of what mine was. And I needed to find a happy medium where I could make sure my talking points made it into media. Media was an incredibly important early uh, way to get the word out about the work, but also that I needed to serve their interests to some extent. I needed to make sure that they had something worth printing in the paper. And I, to do that, needed to find people who were sick to talk to the media and not just tell the story of how we got sick. The second thing was, as I as I got further involved in lobbying efforts, part of, one of the issues of being a young-looking small woman on Capitol Hill was that I looked like a staffer. And so I had to figure out how do I distinguish myself from staffers and how do I make sure staffers listen to me? I would go into these rooms with all of these men in uniform who would like break down in tears about how sick they and their you know departments got. And then they would turn to me and these people would be like, who the hell is this lady? And you know, I looked like I was one of their daughters and I I'm, I'm, I'm energetic and I looked too sprightly and they were just like, I don't know who this lady is. So I started asking responders to repeat what I was saying after me in those meetings. And I started making sure that they were echoing the story themselves so that when I told the story, they would, every, every staffer would hear it twice and they'd hear it once from me. And you know, somebody who looked young and it's a sad story when someone when a child when someone who looks like a child tells you the story, but then they would hear it also from somebody in a uniform that they trusted. And I think as that's I, that's not obviously a strategy any person on the hill can employ for any issue, but it did make me think about okay, there are some harsh realities about being me on the hill right now. I need to figure out how to work around those instead of just getting bogged down in how unfair they are. That mentality has been helpful to me overall, even though it's like initially a frustrating fact to face. And I think it's why I ended up embracing the theater a little bit of doing this kind of work. This is very theatrical work and everyone frames advocacy work and frames organizing in general as if it's like really cut and dry, you know, making phone calls and to do lists and like a lot of the really public work as an advocate is performance. It's it's storytelling, it's theater. And if you don't admit that to yourself, you end up missing out on being as effective as you could be. So I think those were like the ways in which I helped elevate the message once I had the attention and helped kind of propel things forward, but always with a sense of like, what is my agenda in doing this? What does the issue get out of this? Yeah, and I think it's important for anyone listening, if you're thinking like, I can't do that, I'm not theatrical, like, to remember I'm that not, not. <laughs> <laughs> not everybody in any given organization needs to play that role, that, that there exactly. are multiple roles to play. And so maybe there is somebody in your group who does that, who gets people's attention, who can, who can sort of 
do that. And then there's somebody else who, you know, keeps the spreadsheet of who have we contacted and, do, you know, what, what sort of response did we get and do we need to follow up? And there's somebody else who's a strong writer. And, you know, so there's, there's various ways to get involved. And that's, I think, what we hope to highlight, too. We'll, we'll try to talk to a variety of people working on different issues at different levels of government, but also bringing different skills to the table. When this work involves literally every skill that a person could have. It involves storytelling, but it also involves organization. It involves somebody who is happy to be the theater person, but it also involves people who are happy to make the phone calls on the back end. It, mm -hmm. If you have any skills, you have skills that can be useful to a political movement. And I think when I was a kid, I used to go and volunteer at big anti-war groups and I would stuff envelopes. And I hated that work because I'm antsy and I can't sit still and I like talking to people and they would put you in a room by yourself and you'd just be sad stuffing envelopes. And I knew people who loved doing that work because it was mindless and they could listen to a, the radio and it, you know, it, it kind of like relaxed them, it was meditative. And those people are also incredibly valuable to the work and I in that role was not valuable at all because I would go like through 10 envelopes and then be like, I hate this, I'm leaving. <laughs> and so it took me a while to figure out that I didn't need to work my way up to being the theater person. I needed to find a role where I could use the skills that I actually have and somebody else could excel at the things that I don't excel at and we could all do what we were good at. So we've mentioned that we're going to try to find people from all over and we would love our listeners to help with that. So yes. if you have ideas, especially we all know the sort of big national groups and national organizers, but if you know somebody who's working on a tiny little local issue, but is really effective at how they're doing it, we would love to talk to them too. So we have various ways you can get in touch with us and I would encourage people to do that. We'll put that in the show notes, but also you can email us at hello at whatcanidopodcast.com. You can find our website and please interact with us on Twitter, which is at whatcanidopod. I'm very excited to see what who people know the work of that we don't know the work of yet. I feel like there's a lot of great advocacy stories out there that are not getting enough attention. Yes. So hopefully for everyone, this will help you. I think we're all inspired, the inspiration piece we've all got down, but, but we'll help <laughs> you figure out how. How can I actually do something now? What can I do how, how do I sort of take the next step? I know after a series of disastrous Supreme Court decisions came down recently, I, and I'm sure you two, were getting phone calls like, is it just all over? Like, is there anything Absolutely. I can do? <laughs> we're, the country's just ended. You know, I think there's always a next step. There's always a next thing you can do. And that's that's what we're here to help you find. Absolutely. All right. Well, Lila, always a pleasure. And I look forward to talking to all of our exciting guests, too. Me too. Thanks for listening to What Can I Do? You can find show notes and credits for this episode at whatcanidopodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio used by What Can I Do is in the public domain or used with permission. Original artwork is by Matthew Wesson and used with express permission. You can find us on Twitter at WhatCanIDoPod. To contact us with questions or guest suggestions, please email hello at WhatCanIDoPodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends.
Media.